Welcome to This Week in the History of Psychology for September 4th to 10th. This is your host, Christopher Green of York University in Toronto, Canada. In this episode, we'll first take a brief look at some of the most important events that happened during This Week in Psychology's past. Then we'll have our feature interview with Professor David Baker about the 1947 Schakow Report to the APA that helped to establish clinical psychology as a bona fide profession. Finally, we'll celebrate the birthdays of some important psychologists. All this and more on this installment of This Week in the History of Psychology. For September 4th. In 1929, Psy Chi, the National Honor Society in Psychology, was founded at Yale University. Psy Chi was first named Sigma Pi, then Sigma Pi Sigma, until it was discovered that those were the names of a social fraternity and a physics society. Psy Chi was chosen as the name in 1930. Also for September 4th, in 1935, the Psychometric Society was founded in Ann Arbor, Michigan by Louis L. Thurstone. The Psychometric Society was invited to become Division 4 of the American Psychological Association, but the Psychometric Society declined, and to this day there is no APA Division 4. Also on September 4th in 1953, Eugene Azarinsky and Nathaniel Kleitman first reported rapid eye movement, or REM sleep, in an article published in Science. For September 5th, in 1938, the first annual meeting of the American Association for Applied Psychology, or AAAP, was held at the University of Minnesota. The AAAP merged with the American Psychological Association in 1944. For September 6th, in 1945, the merger between the AAAP and the APA was completed and the modern, reorganized APA was officially inaugurated. For September 7th, in 1950, the American Psychological Association announced that it was recommending that its members not accept positions at the University of California until it rescinded its requirement that professors sign a loyalty oath to the United States. One of the psychologists who had refused was the noted behaviorist E.C. Tolman. For September 8th, in 1854, the cornerstone was laid for the State Asylum for Idiots in Syracuse, New York, the first building in the United States expressly built for the care and training of people with mental retardation and developmental disabilities. For September 10th, in 1903, Clifford W. Beers was discharged from the Connecticut Hospital for the Insane, bringing to an end three years of institutionalization. Beers later wrote the book, A Mind That Found Itself, describing the treatment he had received, and this book became the founding document for the mental hygiene movement of the 1920s and 30s. And also for September 10th, in 1932, B.F. Skinner made his very first paper presentation to an American Psychological Association convention. The paper was titled, The Rate of Establishment of a Discrimination. And finally, an event that's more of interest to the history of psychology than psychology as a whole, but on September 7th, 1965, the American Psychological Association granted official status to Division 26 for the history of psychology. Robert I. Watson was instrumental in the formation of the new division, which is now called the Society for the History of Psychology.
On September 4, 1947, the American Psychological Association officially accepted a report by David Schakow on standards for the training of all clinical psychologists in the United States. It followed from a similar report that he had written for the American Association for Applied Psychology in 1941 and went on to become the basis for the 1950 Boulder model that serves as the foundation for the PhD in clinical psychology up to the present day. Here to talk with us about the importance of the Shackow Report is Professor David Baker, Director of the Archives of the History of American Psychology in Akron, Ohio. Professor Baker, first could you tell us a little bit about the, what the state of clinical psychology training was in the U.S. prior to World War II? There would be little that any of us, I think, would recognize in the way of clinical psychology training before World War II. Certainly, uh, since the 19th century, there were people offering services uh, to treat mental disorders or mental illness, but those were under a uh, the guise of a variety of uh, pseudosciences. And I think into the 20th century, the technologies of applied psychology, particularly things like testing, the emphasis on individual difference, led to the emergence of a new, I guess, professional class of psychologists, uh, applied psychologists who worked in a variety of ways. So I think that, uh, again, it's hard often to realize that uh, in the early 20th century, there really were no distinctions. Uh, amongst psychologists. And there were those psychologists who were interested in applied settings, and those could be in industry, they could be in education, um, and they could be uh, in healthcare and working with uh, people with severe mental, mental illness. Mm -hmm. Now, I understand that A.T. Poffenberger had attempted to set up a kind of clinical training program at Columbia in the 1930s. What, what came of that venture? Uh, I think, like a lot of people, uh, Poffenberger and a number of colleagues, and particularly in New York City, and it makes sense in, in these large urban areas where applied psychologists were practicing their new trades, um, found an interest in the academy, but the academy didn't seem to have as much interest in them. Uh, early applied psychologists, again in traditional departments of psychology at places like Columbia, would not get a necessarily very warm reception for their applied work. And that was uh, obviously the new kind of fudgling science of psychology was trying to establish itself as a, as a bench science and uh, did not have a lot of interest in applied applications. So that people like Poffenberger would often run into a lot of dead ends trying to propose, let alone establish, uh, any kind of training program. Mm -hmm. and, but then in 1941, the uh, American Association for Applied Psychology, or AAAP, commissioned mm -hmm. Poffenberger and David Schakow and Henry Murray and Robert Yerkes and Carl Rogers and about a dozen others to develop a standard training program for American clinical psychologists. Um, they met for a day in New York, and then Shackow drafted a report. Why the strong push at this time for institutionalized clinical psychology, and what kinds of recommendations came out of that 1941 meeting? Yeah, I, it, it's a, it was an interesting meeting, and if you looked at a number of the people that you mentioned that were involved in that, you had a really a wide spectrum of people. Witness uh, Robert Yerkes, Ward Halstead. Uh, you had you had a number of people, as I said earlier, interested in this new. Uh, kind of applied technology of psychology, which found itself into lots of, of avenues. And I don't know, person, it's an interesting historical question. Um, I, well, we'll talk a little bit about what I, about this whole notion that David Shackow really set the tone and tenor uh, of that early AAAP uh, group and took primary responsibility for drafting 
the first report. Or, I don't know this to be a fact, but I've spent a lot of time and I've looked at a lot of original documents, and it seems to me that uh, the, the, the mere fact that Shackow was actually willing to commit all of this to paper uh, gave the training of professional psychologists uh, a definitely a very clinical bent. Now there were a lot of people that were interested in clinical work and as I said there were also people interested in work in industry and people interested in work in education and had been working for decades in those fields. Actually uh, probably less clinical application than applications in say industry and education. But Shackow got there first and was willing to do the work and I think we find that true in our own committees and meetings today. Uh, you know you think about it I don't know how many of us would like to sit down and draft a curriculum. Mm -hmm. I know uh, in many universities we have our curriculum committees, but sometimes you need to kind of bring people kicking and screaming to participate. So my point, one of my points is, is that Shackow was willing to shoulder that responsibility. You understand that Shackow himself was working in a psychiatric setting. He was working in a psychiatric hospital, Worcester State Hospital, and that's what he knew. Uh, and he understood the applications of psychology, but he understood them best as applied to psychopathology and the treatment of uh, psychiatric patients. So what so what were the what kinds of recommendations were there for training then in the Shackow report? Mhm. Mm uh I think Shackow outlined a basically and it's 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 still very contemporary. You know, the and this was again it was a committee report, but Shackow kind of took responsibility, uh had a lot of experience, had a lot of ideas about training clinical psychologists, and he put together a program uh, with uh, it was geared again towards kind of medical medical work or medical science. Uh, it was a four-year program that he envisioned that would provide foundation in psychology and in medicine, uh, work in psychometrics and psychotherapy, uh, internship experience of which he was very familiar at Worcester State Hospital, and a final year that would be used for the completion of a dissertation. Mm -hmm. And that was the basic. That was the basic model and that was uh, the first report of 1941 that uh, AAAP uh, then took and approved and uh, began to elaborate on that by creating a uh, it was the committee on training in clinical psychology mm -hmm. now I suppose that the merger between the AAAP and the American Psychological Association in 1944 threw this process into a bit of chaos the APA, which until that time had been primarily a scientific organization, was now forced to absorb and process all sorts of applied psychology issues that until that time had been largely outside of their mandate. Can you tell us what events led up to Shaka's 47 report, 1947 report for, to the APA, um, which is the one we're mainly concerned with here today? Mm -hmm. And how did it differ from his 1941 report to the AAAP? Uh, I think it's a, yeah, it's a good point. And as you mentioned, the I, I often wonder what that time must have been like when AAAP and AAPA were, were merging uh, together. Uh, probably wasn't uh, a, an easy union. The, the reorganization of APA was, it seems to me, looking back, quite enormous and gave us the division structure that we have today. But as you said, it clearly, it clearly gave prominence to the applied or practice end of psychology and gave it some legitimacy. And, and obviously, a large part of that was due to the war effort. Uh, an important issue was the fact that uh, the Veterans Administration, the United States Public Health Service, became very keenly aware at mid-century 
that uh, there was a, a fairly alarming incidence of mental illness in the general population. And they knew this largely through uh, the screening of recruits. You know, once again, psychological uh, science and practice uh, was a major contributor to that. Mm -hmm. The methods uh, for identifying uh, people with psychopathology was, was better. And uh, it looked like there was an incidence of psychiatric illness not only in the general population, but the Veterans Administration knew from experience in the First World War that the majority of patients in um, the VA hospital were psychiatric patients. And they knew that given the scope and size of the war, that there was going to be a huge influx of psychiatric casualties and there was not nearly uh, a large enough uh, mental health professional force to cope with that. So the reorganization of APA was uh, spurred in part uh, by a, a national need uh, for psychological science to have its house in order to be more unified and organized and as an extension of that to assist in the creation of a mental health task force. Now that all by way of background of saying that uh, after the merger of AAAP and the APA, uh, there was yet another committee formed, and there were a lot of them, uh, but the, uh, the, it was the Committee on Training in Clinical Psychology, CTCP, I believe it was. And, um, and interestingly enough, um, Chakow was asked to chair that committee by then APA President Carl Rogers. Mm -hmm. and, um, it included a lot of folks that uh, Chakow had worked with earlier in the 40s, on uh, some of the early AAAP reports. But once again, I think it's important, and it's a bit of a, a shorthand, I guess. Um, Shackow's report that he first outlined in 1941 stayed essentially the same. I mean, different people looked at it. They added different emphases. Uh, but the notion of graduate training um, with uh, science and practical experience over a period of four years culminating in a dissertation and internship experience remained fairly intact. And the, uh, the CTCP report, which came out in the American Psychologist in 1947, became widely known actually as the Shackow Report. Probably 30 or 40 people had participated over the last six years in these, but it was clearly the province of David Shackow. And this uh, report, this training document, really would become the central uh, document for the Boulder Conference. Right. Well, that's, that's, that moves us on actually to my next question, which is in 1950 came the culmination of all this activity, which was the Boulder Conference, at, at which the framework under which many clinical psychologists are trained up to the present day was developed. Can you tell us a bit about that conference and its recommendations? Yeah. I've written, uh, you know, Liddy Benjamin and I did a special issue in the American Psychologist for the 50th anniversary in uh, 99. And it still, to me, remains one of those just kind of uh, phenomenal events. Uh, the, the, the conference was co-sponsored by the United States Public Health Service, uh, had federal officials from the Health Service, from the Veterans Administration, and uh, 70, 73, I think 73 participants were invited to Boulder, um, the University of Colorado, for uh, basically uh, a two-week meeting to hammer out the plans for a training program in clinical psychology. And it was interesting that they weren't only psychologists that were there. They had people from nursing and social work. They had a, a wide range of people uh, that would be interested in uh, offering uh, mental health services. So basically, uh, they met um, 
in August of uh, 49. Uh, they worked for 15 days to prepare uh, what we now widely know and accept as the uh, bolder model of training for clinical psychologists, which has become in many ways the, the model for training professional psychologists. Mm -hmm. It's a model followed by uh, clinical psychologists, counseling psychologists, school psychologists. Right. And how? what was the relationship between its recommendations and Shackow? Was this, was this just uh, a, a more or less a repetition of Shackow's uh, recommendations dating back to the early 40s, or were there new aspects uh, that came in with the Boulder Conference and with the consultation with all those different people? Yeah, I think it's, like, it's almost like a process of, uh, of sharpening the focus. And, uh, you know, Shackow from the beginning always had this kind of trinity of diagnosis, therapy, and research. And uh, I think probably the biggest uh, development out of the negotiations at Boulder was the need to balance both professional service and research. Mm -hmm. And that is what some would consider, uh, I guess, the ideal is an integrated model of science and practice. Uh, the reality is much more like a bifurcated process of, of practice and science. Uh, I think it was a visionary uh, document and goal. It's one that we've struggled with for over 50 years. I think it's still a worthy model. Um, but uh, what came out of that essentially was the recommendation for training of uh, clinical professional psychologists in both uh, professional service and research. Right. Now, there has been some resistance to the Boulder model, both on the part of those who identify themselves as scientists and those who think of themselves primarily as practitioners. What's the nature of some of that resistance, and how strong do you think the Boulder model will remain in the future? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and uh, I don't know. I mean, I think there's, there's those that have, that have held from a kind of a community psychology perspective that um, the Boulder model emphasizes uh, psychopathology, uh, and that it needs to, uh, the training needs to uh, be more kind of, uh, contextual and community focused. Uh, there are those who believe that uh, um, it's not really possible to blend science and practice that they don't really inform one another and those should stay separate functions. There's been a variety of meetings in the intervening decades about the appropriate training. Uh, much debate and discussion, other developments like the development actually of freestanding professional schools. But yet, you know, the Boulder model endures. And uh, there's many times that many people would believe that uh, it's kind of uh, the death knell was ever present. But it hasn't happened yet. And uh, what we do have now are a variety of, of models for training. I may th say models. I think the professional school movement would also dictate that uh, Practitioners uh, need to understand and be able to utilize science in their practice. Uh, and I think the debate will continue. All right. Well, thank you very much for this today. We have been speaking with Professor David Baker, the Director of the Archives of the History of American Psychology at the University of Akron in Ohio. Professor Baker is the co-author of the book From Seance to Science, A History of the Profession of Psychology in America with Ludy T. Benjamin, Jr., that book was published in the year 2004 by Wadsworth. He is also the co-author, again with Ludy T. Benjamin Jr., of the 2000 article in American Psychologist entitled The Affirmation of the Scientist Practitioner, A Look Back at Boulder. If you'd like to read the Shackow Report itself, you can find it in the 1947 volume of American Psychologist, or you can find it on my Classics in the History of Psychology website. 
If you're interested in looking more deeply into the life and career of David Shackow, you could look at the chapter written by Robin L. Cotton entitled David Shackow, Architect of Modern Clinical Psychology. That can be found in Volume 6 of the Portraits of Pioneers in Psychology series. Uh, edited by Donald A. Dewsbury, Ludie T. Benjamin Jr., and Michael Wertheimer. And that was published in the year 2006 by both the APA and Lawrence Erlbaum Associates. And finally, if you're interested in looking at some of the criticism of Shackow's model for clinical psychological training, you might look at an article by George Albee, uh, published in 1971, an American psychologist, entitled The Uncertain Future of Clinical Psychology. And now it's time for birthdays. For September 4th, in 1927, John McCarthy was born. McCarthy developed the computer language LISP and applied mathematical logic to computer programs that use common sense knowledge and reasoning. He also named the field of artificial intelligence. And for September 6th, in 1886, Edgar John Rubin was born. Rubin was a Danish Gestalt psychologist who invented the famous ambiguous figure that can be seen either as a vase or as two faces in profile. For September 9th, in 1737, Luigi Galvani was born. Galvani discovered the electrical nature of nervous transmission. And also on September 9th, in 1890, Kurt Lewin was born. Lewin's field theory applied the principles of Gestalt perceptual theory to social, personality, and organizational psychologies. And for September 10th, in 1839, Charles Sanders Peirce was born. Peirce is best known for founding the American Philosophical School of Pragmatism, but he may have also been the first American experimental psychologist. His experimental work examined color vision and visual difference thresholds. And also on September 10th, in 1863, Charles E. Spearman was born. By studying correlations among various mental tasks, Spearman proposed the theory that intelligence is composed of two factors, general intelligence, or little g, and specific abilities, or little s. He also developed the Spearman rank order correlation coefficient, the Spearman brown reliability coefficient, and early factor analysis procedures. And that's it for this episode of This Week in the History of Psychology. We would love to hear your comments on the show. You can email at us at twithop, that's the initials of This Week in the History of Psychology, twithop at yorku.ca, that's Y-O-R-K-U dot C-A. We would like to thank York University for hosting the program, as well as Michael Guimar for his technical assistance, and especially Warren Street and the American Psychological Association for their website today in the history of psychology, which we use for research and from which we sometimes quote directly. This Week in the History of Psychology is the sole property of Christopher Green. The opinions expressed on This Week in the History of Psychology are not necessarily those of Christopher Green or of York University. 